the point is, is that I think, I think with all this stuff, I think it's safe to say that it, it doesn't look like empowerment to the feminine. What it looks like to me is objectification and enslavement, okay? And, and a, a chase after an unattainable good. And so this is what, this is what femininity has become in the modern day and age. It is either superficial or oversexed. Okay? It's one of the two. Again, remember the, the via media, the middle way, is the halfway between the two extremes. So not oversexed, not superficial, but seeing the beauty of the woman, but also seeing what she was made for. It was not just for sex. Superficial or oversexed. And that's the two choices women find themselves uh, choosing between to identify what their femininity really means. But on the, as I said, so we have that, and then the opposite side, we have the anti-feminist movement, which says that we should just get rid of all this liberation stuff and get back to fixing their hair and doing their, making their husbands dinners and making sandwiches and things like that. All right? So you have, you have one where it's just like, just stay at home, wear your slippers all day, and make me food, clean, and take care of the kids. And then on the other side, you have just this oversex, superficial understanding of woman. So those are, those are these two extremes, and in the middle is where we hopefully will find what femininity actually is. So in, uh, a feminist in the 1960s once wrote this. Each suburban wife <clears throat> struggled with a question alone as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, drove her kids around to practice, and laid beside her husband at night. She was afraid to ask even of herself this silent question. Is this all there is? <clears throat> is this all there is? And out of this came the mantra that women actually seek fulfillment in careers and politics rather than marriage and family. So <clears throat> this, this feminist writes this thing about like, all I'm doing is providing as a mother, right? And I'm driving around to practices, I'm eating sandwiches, I'm laying next to my husband at night sleeping, and I come to this stark realization, is this it? Is this all that life is? Is I just, with my husband, take care of my kids, and, 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 and that's life, and die. And out of this came this mantra that women should actually get out into the, pub, the, the public sphere. They should get out of the house. Forget about marriage and family. This is the feminist mantra, right? Women's rights, higher education, the sexual revolution, denigrated marriage and promoted promiscuity and abortion. So in the end, most women found that their inner emptiness was still with them. <laughs> That's the biggest problem. So now that they got out of the house, they're still asking the same question. Is this it? And in fact, most of the time, these women that did get out of the house and got into the, the public sphere, they're much more injured and wounded now because they've been used repeatedly. So let's lead this back to the drawing board. So what is this genius? John Paul II once joked that he was the feminist pope. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But he said in his letter, by the way, it's called Mulieribus uh, uh, Dignitatum, right? The dignity of women. It was the first, you should know this, the dignity, and, the dignity of woman, or women. It was the first ever Papal document completely dedicated to women. <clears throat> On the dignity of women, it was the first papal document ever to be completely dedicated to women. 
document? Papal document, magisterial document, church document. <clears throat> so Catholic church document had never been put forward a single document just on woman. And notice, it's really interesting because John Paul II comes along right at the time when women are getting destroyed and men are falling apart and he develops this, what he calls the theology of the body, right? That the body itself speaks a theology, a truth. And we can, he was what's called a phenomenologist. <clears throat> it's a type of philosopher. Phenomenologists look at a thing from like every possible direction that you can look, right? So they say, like his, one of his, one of his things that he said is like, when, a, when you, like if, if a woman's in a shower, don't think about this too long, if a woman's taking a shower and all of a sudden like she gets out of the shower and she opens the curtain and there's like this guy like, ah, you know, like what is her knee jerk reaction? What does she immediately do? Covers herself. Why? Job all saying says that in philosophy, a phenomenologist looks at a phenomenon within nature and says, why? Why are they doing that? So immediately it's like, you know, or it's like grabbing the shower curtain. Or maybe it's just like a kick to the face. I don't know. You know like, but why that? And he says, and he says specifically, why here? He's like, why? When they're there, he's just like, ah! You know, like, cover your eyes. They're like, ah! Like, <laughs> the ear. The ear and the kneecap. You know, he said, why this? Because that knee-jerk reaction, that phenomenon within nature, is telling us something about the truth of what it means to be human. And he comes to this understanding, he says, the reason a woman does that is because she knows she is not to be used. And the reason she's covering that is not because they're bad, but they're too damn good. So he, he say, then he flips it and he says, well, okay, so that should be the reaction with every man that she opens the shower curtain with, right? No. Because if she's in the shower and she opens up the shower curtain, her husband's sitting there naked brushing his teeth. What does she do? Gets out of the shower and dries off. Why? Why is that the case? Exactly. She doesn't have to worry about him using her. So she doesn't have to cover. He said these are, and, and this is the way he approached all of philosophy. So even, even looking at the sexual act, <clears throat> the physiology of the sexual act, why does it happen like that? Or what is being taught to us through that act? You know, and we talked a little bit about this before. Like when the man initiates the conjugal act, he is giving. That is, his body in the giving of his seed is actually telling us a truth about what it means to be a man. It means that he gives. He sacrifices himself. He gives of himself for the good of the one he loves. And what does the woman's body teach us about love, about femininity? She is receptive. One of her greatest characteristics, we're going to get into this in a little bit when we get into feminine genius, one of her greatest characteristics is her receptivity to receive. And when she gets all screwed up is when she is trying to initiate, when she is trying to give and take the man's place. And John Paul is saying, look at the body. The body can tell us so damn much about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And the complementarity, but also the difference. Because he says, there's also, so there's these two differences. The man is the giver, the woman is the receiver, but there's a complementarity because they fit together. They're made for each other. And the body teaches us that. And this is why then out of that, we will we'll extrapolate that 
he, this is why he would be against homosexual marriage because it goes against the dignity of that objective truth of what it means to be man, what it means to be woman. In the order of nature, you are doing something that was never meant to be done. And the body teaches us that. Yeah. But in nature, there are other homosexual Right. That doesn't, make their, doesn't mean they're right. It just means that the disorder exists across all the animal kingdom. And we're in that. Well, that's why we'd say an, an animal is not guilty of anything because they're just working on a sexual instinct. But man is different. Man has the ability to choose. Right? So the animal can't be blamed, but the man, or humanity, can be blamed. And here's the craziest part, too. So, like, if you just start giving into your instincts over and over and over and over again, you become more like an animal. Right? That's what animals do. Animals just give into their instincts. That's why when there isn't even, like, another animal there, they'll, they'll start humping your leg. Because they, they're, they're so sexually charged at a given time that they just can't control themselves. Think about a man who rapes a woman. What's going on there? He's so sexually charged, he can't control himself. So he rapes the woman. It's like, an, it's like an act of an animal. Animals do that. But the more we choose, the more we enter in and understand what the act is and what it means and all this stuff, the more human we become. That's why I would argue Christianity is, is the most human of all the religions. It makes us more human, not less human. Magnifies our humanity, right? So anyway, that's. I just want to give you just a little introduction to John Paul. It's very. It's, it's not even fair because the guy, he gave us one of the greatest theologies. You know, there's these things in the church called doctors of the church. Right, right now, I think there's four, four doctors of the church. Uh, three are women. Four are women. Uh, no, there's a lot. There's 33, 30, 37. Sorry, I was thinking greats. <laughs> I meant greats, because people are going to call John Paul II the great, and there's of the popes, there's only three greats. Leo the Great, Gregory the Great, there's one other one. But anyway, he would be the fourth one, because he gave such an amazing theology. Right? And so, I want to look into that a little bit, him and Hedish Stein, okay? Uh, in this letter on the dignity of, of women, he writes this. He, he, or he, he laments the development of the technological age which creates a philosophical ideology to prize things more than people. Right? He laments the fact that our philosophical ideology right now prizes things more than people. The world right now has a philosophical ideology that prizes things more than people. And it measures a person's worth by how much they can produce. And it measures a person's worth by how much they can produce. And then he says this, he says, this is where the feminine comes into the picture. Our time, in particular, <coughs> awaits the manifestation of that genius which belongs particularly to the woman, and which can ensure sensitivity for human beings in every circumstance just because 
They are human. And because the greatest of these is love. And he's referencing, obviously, 1 Corinthians. In other words, what John Paul II is saying, to combat this ideology, he's saying this. Women were not born to shop, shop or flaunt their bodies. They were born to love. They were born to love. Now, this is just the beginning of the unpacking of the feminine genius, okay? <clears throat> and I think deep down women know this. And they desire it. They want it. But they just give up. And rather than focusing on their femininity, they just amass more things. Buy more clothes. But what, what, what society needs is women to step up and be that gentle, loving, and humane presence that the world needs. In Evangelium Vitae, this is uh, on human life, it was another church document. <clears throat> John Paul II, again, calls for a new Christian feminism. He says this, in transforming culture so that it supports life, women occupy a place in thought and action which is unique and decisive. Okay? In transforming culture so that it supports life, women occupy a place in thought and action which is unique and decisive. This is really, really important because if you think about the contraceptive war right now, the war on contraception, the war on abortion, the war on all these things, who are the chief proponents of promoting contraception and abortion? Women. They can kill the culture of life if they're not formed well. And without them, the culture of life will never exist. That's what John Paul II is saying. We need women to be decisive in promoting a culture of life. Because if a woman comes forward, if all the women would come forward and say, no, our femininity, by its very nature, femininity means that we give birth. We are the ones that produce the child with the minute, small help of a man. <laughs> he's integral, but he's pretty small. But to use contraception, to use abortion, is, is not enhancing your femininity, ladies. It is degrading your femininity. I mean, one of the greatest things about you, ladies, is what? Life. It is the single greatest thing about you. And the culture of death right now says you should destroy that. You should get rid of that. You should push it away at all costs. Your greatest thing, your greatest characteristic, the ability to produce life, the world is saying, shut that down. And women are championing. They're standing, raising their fists, get your rosaries off my ovaries, <laughs> right? And saying, we, are, we want contraception. We want abortion. We want women's rights. This is not enhancing femininity. This is crushing what it means to be a woman. And until women get this through their head, the culture of death will reign. This is an incredible insight by John Paul II. He says this, it depends on them to promote a new feminism which rejects the temptation of imitating models of male domination. So get out of your head that you need to be like us. Be you. We need you to be you. And to be you as a feminine, like, be your femininity. 
In order to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of women in every aspect of life of society and overcome all discrimination, violence, and exploitation. According to this passage, femininity doesn't belong to the category of imitating boys behaving badly or tearing men down. It lies in becoming more fully what God created woman to be, which is a champion of life. A champion of life. Part of the feminine genius. So John Paul II then comes up, he calls, this is, this is what I, underneath, like your number one for the feminine genius is spiritual maternity, okay? We're gonna unpack what that means. <clears throat> spiritual matern maternity, it means a radical openness to the human person. Because <clears throat> women will fight to the death for their kids. You know, men are a lot more calm, I think. Women tend to just be, they're crazy when it comes to their kids. Did you say radical openness to what? To, hu to the human person. <clears throat> and it's connected deeply to motherhood, too. So it's radical openness to the human person, and it's connected deeply to motherhood. <clears throat> and then a little bullet point underneath that. Women have an innate, or a born, like, it's, they're born with it. Women are born with a gift to care for the human person. <clears throat> Again, I think you can just say, this is nothing against the, the, you know, males being nurses, but, I mean, like, why was that a woman's job for so long? Because women are better at caring for the person. Doctors come in, they say, here, this is your problem. We're going to do this, this, and this, because it's very methodical. This is a masculine brain at work. Very systematic, very logical. Okay, do you have any questions? Good, I'll answer those. Here's your answers. Good, we'll prep you for surgery. We'll see you tomorrow. In comes the nurse and takes care of the person. Again, it's not saying that men can't do it. They can. I think men are really effective nurses just simply because they just, everything's so systematic for a man. But a woman has this, this built-in ability to care for the whole person. And here, the reason he's connecting, he's connecting motherhood and the human person is because women need to realize that they are called, in their feminine Jesus, they, genius, they are called to a type of motherhood to all of humanity. So that you are not just a mother to your children, God willing, in the future you will have. You are a mother to all. To all. And if you can see this, it will change, you'll fundamentally change the way you live your life. You know? Would you wear a bikini around your little boy? You know? Well, we're all, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all connected. We're all in the mystical body of Christ through baptism. We all are together in this. And women, you have this ability to care for the human person, to cultivate it. And then he says this. He says, mothers are crucial to the transformation of culture. 
And women's maternal gift of for value, valuing the human person is not something dependent on her ability to bear biological children. It is a gift she possesses simply because she's a woman. And I hope you see, you guys, I hope you just see this. If this is if this spiritual maternity, this idea that the motherhood that you possess within you, which calls you to care for the human person, to protect it, to love it, to serve it on all levels, do you see how demonic abortion and contraception are to the, what it means to be a woman? It is like the one thing, and it's what's so incredible about it, I don't want to harp on it too long, but this is what the feminist culture champions and says this is what we need to be about. And it's the one thing that is like raping you of your femininity. I mean, it's like the culture, the ideology of the culture is saying, let's take away woman's greatest gift and tell her it's a good idea and make her believe that. Ladies, it is to be a woman means to be a sanctuary of life. That's the first thing. You are a proponent, a fighter, a lover, a sanctuary of life. And your whole being should radiate that, okay? <clears throat> so that was JP2. Wanna look at Edith Stein a little bit? She was born into a family, a Jewish family. She was an atheist most of her life. Uh, but she started reading St. Thomas Aquinas. Would you have a question? Who is this? Edith Stein. We're gonna, I'm telling you who she is. Edith. E-D-I-T-H. Edith Stein. S-T-E-I-N. Stein. Okay. Anyway. So she was, a, she was an atheist, most of her life, born to a Jewish family. She read St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Teresa of, uh, of Jesus, St. Teresa of Avila, and she fell in love with the Catholic faith. Okay? She was a, a philosopher by training and education. She as well. She was the secretary to the father of phenomenology. Husserl, I think, was his name. Okay? So the one that came up with phenomenology, he was a little bit crazy. John Paul used him, but throw some Catholic in there, baptized the heck out of uh, phenomenology. But she was, she was the secretary to the founder of that type of philosophy, okay? She became a teacher after her conversion. Uh, she was a philosopher by training and education. She became a teacher until the Nazi occupation of Germany. She was then forced to resign, so she joined a Carmelite monastery as a cloistered nun, took the name St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, okay? It wasn't long after that that she was arrested, she was sent to Auschwitz, and she was murdered. <clears throat> But she left behind a ton of writing on women and what it means to be a woman, okay? She, she kind of flushes out this spiritual maternity thing. Just to give you a few forms of what it looks like, it could be a teenage school girl who risks her popularity to befriend a classmate on the social margins. Why? Because she loves the human person, that's why. And she doesn't want to see any human person get hurt. That's what the spiritual maternity looks like. Second, the nurse who treats the whole person instead of just the disease. Why? Because she's a sanctuary of life. She sees in front of her. She says, I'm a patient. She has a human person that needs to be cared for. Three, the foster mother who embraces the foster child and others dismisses damaged goods. The religious sister who directs wayward souls is also exercising this spiritual maternity. So is the adult daughter who takes her elderly mother to daily doctor appointments and to mass. Or the wife that tends to her demented husband long after he has forgotten her. 
I, uh, there's a, a lady I know from in Scotland. When I went over to Scotland, I, I met her through, she was friends with some of the seminarians. We actually stayed at her place, and her husband played um, for the soccer team in Scotland. The name of it is, his name is Frank Coppell, okay? And he was, like, a big freaking deal. He won the cup for him, all this stuff, and, like, he ended up dying of dementia. <clears throat> and she wrote to me, and she said, please play for Frankie. You know, he, he's dying. He's in his last week. And he is dialing one of the, dying one of the most, what did she say, the most painful it is the most painful disease a person can die from for others she said you just slowly have to watch them completely lose their mind and she he she took care of him all the way to his death like six months where he did he was yelling at her fighting her didn't even realize who she was i don't know if you've seen the movie uh, the theory of everything it's the story of stephen hawking uh, and, you know, Stephen Hawking was fine, and then he developed this neurological thing and turned into this paraplegic, basically. His, his girlfriend, who he ended up marrying, took care of him his whole life. And you want to know how he repaid her? He cheated on her. After she, she took care of him for years, blessed him with three beautiful children, he cheated on her. But that's what women can just give and give and give because they have this innate call to love. And it can get all screwed up if it's not formed correctly, okay? The biggest thing that Edith Stein wrote is about woman is this. She says that a woman must surrender to God and let him do what you cannot do on your own. <clears throat> A woman's job is to surrender to God and let him do what you cannot do on your own. And this surrender begins with a decision. And this is the this is the turning point in her theology. This surrender begins with a decision. To where and to whom? To where and to whom will you direct your feminine longing for love? To where and to whom will you direct your feminine longing for love? This is the most important thing. Because you, ladies, you can you have this deep longing for love. You have this deep longing to, to, to love the whole human person. To, but if you surrender it to the wrong person or the wrong thing, it will destroy you. Edith believed that a desire for loving union with God permeate, permeates every woman's life, whether she is conscious of it or not. Now, you've got to remember... Just, just to be clear, because you can sit back and say she was a religious sister. She wasn't always a religious sister. She was an atheistic philosopher, turned Catholic philosopher, turned Carmelite nun, martyr. So she's been through a lot. And she's, she's not just writing this because she's a nun. 
She's writing this because she's been through the whole gamut and has come to a clear understanding of a woman's heart. And she's one of the only ones that's written on this. She says, The deepest longing of a woman's heart is to give herself lovingly, to belong to another, and to possess this other being completely. I'm going to say that again so you can write it down. The deepest longing of a woman's heart deepest longing of a woman's heart is to give herself lovingly and to belong to another and to possess this other being completely. possess this other being completely. Now, and then write this underneath. A woman's longing for love can lead to joy or sorrow. A woman's longing for love can lead to joy or sorrow depending on where she seeks fulfillment. longing for love can lead to joy or sorrow depending on where she seeks fulfillment. Okay, so like when the maternal instinct gets disordered and the woman places her self-worth on the success of her husband, on his career, on her career, on their children's accomplishment, then children just become an, an extension of the ego of the mother and the father. The natural inclination of the woman for interest into persons can lead to nosiness and gossip. Right? Women, women want to they, they want to know all about. This is what we talked about before, right? That's why, like when they when you come home from work, your wife is like, "Tell me about work," because they want to be received into your very life. But that if that's disordered, if that's connected to the wrong source, it will become gossip. It will become nosiness. This is why Edith Stein argues that you, the woman has to first of all be connected to God. That is the source, the longing in her heart that only God can fulfill. No man is ever going to fulfill it, ladies. No man will ever fulfill that. And don't you dare pretend like he will. Just as gentlemen, no woman is going to fulfill your deepest longings. She's going to help you. And he's going to help you, ladies. But we have this hole in our soul that gets back to this fact that nothing on this earth can satisfy it. And if you don't understand that, you will pour all this stuff into your wife and the wife will pour all this stuff into her husband and you will be let down. Because your wife will let you down. Your husband will let you down. There has got to be a third part in this trinity of relationship. This is why we marriage is an, is an echo, is a, is a shadow of the trinity. There's three persons in the trinity. If it's, a sh if it's a foreshadowing of marriage, then marriage needs what? Three persons. And not the baby, <laughs> the mom and dad. And he's the spouses, the mother and the father, the wife and the husband, 
and the third person is God himself. And that is your goal. That, as I said back here, that is where you direct all of your longing for love. And if you don't, you will be let down. Especially women. Because women have to be loved in order to be satisfied. If they're not loved, they will not be satisfied. Men, men don't need to be loved. Men can go fishing. Men can go hunting. Men can drink with their buddies. But women, if women aren't loved, they are not satisfied. This is crazy stuff, you guys. Here's another one. The beautiful desire to serve others can be warped when it leads to a woman to take on too much and to fail at her primary responsibility of being a, a wife and a mother. These are women that have like 50,000 things going at the parish. And they have basketball and they have soccer and they have all this thing and they're packing. And they're totally not even present to their kids because they have too much going on. Because it's their, their, their desire to serve the human person has run amok. If a woman, however, directs all of her person to God, she experiences something entirely different. Christ becomes the norm for the woman. And in him, she can see what she truly should be. Right? Total abandonment. Compassion perfected. You see in Christ the selfless servant. It's everything that the woman wants. And it's everything that she should encourage her husband to be. To realize he's broken, he's weak. I mean, as I look to the saints, I used to get a couple examples of saints. Blessed Mother Teresa, she's an incredible example of, of spiritual maternity, right? And I'm not just going to use, I'm not just going to use religious. I'm going to use a couple married people too. And she had this radiant smile in all situations. Her love for the poorest of the poor. In 1994, the prayer breakfast speech, in which she condemned <coughs> abortion in front of all of America's politicians. She outrightly condemned abortion. They brought her up to speak at the prayer breakfast, and she chastised them for killing babies. And she said this, don't kill the child. Give me the child. People tend to think that this great woman had this mystical relationship with the Lord. She had all these crazy visions where she saw Jesus all the time, and that's why she could minister to the poorest of the poor and care for you know, the, there's a story, I don't know if you ever heard this story. She's, she's, Mother Teresa was a piece of work, man. All the saints are pieces of work. But like she got on, she, was, she wanted to go to Beirut because there was, there was fighting over there. And there was a, 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 what do you call it? Like a home for retarded children. There were 87 retarded children, I think. And they were caught in this home. And because of the fighting back and forth, they couldn't get food to them. So these retarded children, were, they were going to die. So Mother Teresa got on this boat. She's like, I'm going to get them. And they're like, you can't do that. And she has this candle, and she said, this candle I'm giving to Our Lady of Peace. And I'm going to pray on the boat, and on the way, when we get over there, I'm going to light this candle, and there will be no more war. And everybody's like, okay, get on. <laughs> and then when they tried to find her, you know where they found her? She was on the bottom of the deck of the boat scrubbing toilets. When she got off the boat, she came in, and the head of the whole thing came up to her, and he's like, Mother, you can't go. And she's like, no, I, I've been praying for a ceasefire, and there's going to be a ceasefire tomorrow. And he's like, Mother, if there is a ceasefire tomorrow, I will personally drive you over and have you, I will, I will give you, I will chauffeur you over to the hospital. 
And it's great. If you ever watch the documentary Mother Teresa, he has this conversation with her, and then the next scene is, is overlooking Beirut, and it's just silent, and the sun's rising. <laughs> and the guy's driving her to the hospital. I mean, that's like a woman that's just... I don't think anybody would look at Mother Teresa and be like, that was not a woman. She was just a shining example of what women should be. Right? Here's another one. Blessed Gianna Beretta Mola. You ever heard of her? She's an incredible woman, right? She was a doctor, a wife, and a mother. She was remembered for her intense care of her patients, or her patients, her fervent love for her husband, and her heroic decision in 1962 to choose life when she gave up her life so her child could live. She gave birth to her child, and they knew that she was going to die if she went through with it. But she chose to give life to her child instead of abort the child. Tell me, that isn't some beautiful, beautiful femininity. A champion of life. You should read, you guys, you should freaking read the letters between Gianna and her husband. They are the most poetic and beautiful love letters you will ever read. They were so damn madly in love with one another, and he supported her in the decision. That's crazy. I know Monsignor Shea, I don't know if you ever heard this story, but he met the daughter. The one that's alive now today. He met her. She was at the canonization. She got up and <coughs> spoke on behalf of her mother because she was alive. That's incredible. St. Teresa of Avila, here's another one. She was great. She was this little feisty fireball from Spain. She was like this, she was just, I mean, she was the party girl that turned holy. She was wealthy. She had everything. She turned it all away and gave it to Jesus. She was a woman. She was a mystic, but she was so human too. You know? Because I, 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 I think sometimes we paint pictures of, of the saints and we make them too, we put them on this pedestal. And, and we can't live up to them. Like, Teresa, she painted, they painted a portrait of her, and they did it in a rush in one day. And Teresa said to her spiritual director, Father Grathian, said the painting showed nothing, he said the painting showed nothing of her charm or the grace of the Holy Mother. And she said to the painter, may God forgive you, Brother John, for you have painted me roomy-eyed and ugly. Right, so she's very human too, but she's got a, she's got a little bit of this kind of fire, fire still in her. This is not a weak woman. She reformed the entire religious life at the time. This is not a weak woman. There's so many examples. But there are, I want to give you two temptations of women, okay? In the area of the spiritual maternity. Two temptations. The first one is this. To go ahead of the man. <clears throat> to go ahead of the man. Your, your example from Scripture is Eve, right? She was supposed to be with Adam, his helper. And yet she went ahead of him and did her own thing. Second is to take advantage of the selfish desires of men. So either go ahead of a man, they take away his leadership, they take <coughs> away his masculinity... Or they take advantage of the selfish desires of men. So, so men, like we were talking about, you know, were selfish. And, and the little bullet under here I put is using sex to control the man. And this happens a lot, you guys. Holy crap, does this happen a lot. 
<clears throat> two other things I just want to include uh, quickly with the feminine genius. Those are two just pitfalls I just want you to be aware of. Another part of feminine genius is to show the world the proximity of God, of his mercy and his love. To show the world the proximity of God, his mercy and his love. And women need to teach men the love and the mercy of God. You know, it's really incredible. If you look at the Gospels, um, the one that focuses on love and mercy the absolute most is which Gospel? Huh? John. Why? Why is John the one that focuses on love and mercy the most? The other ones are just recountings, like right. We call them the Synoptic Gospels: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They just kind of they just kind of record the life of Jesus, some of his sayings, some of his actions, but not John. John goes in depth into love and mercy and forgiveness, and like theologically explains these things in his gospel. He's totally different than the other gospels. Why? Because he was with Mary. Mary taught John how to love. Taught him what mercy was. Taught him what compassion was. Taught him what sensitivity was. The foot of the cross, Jesus entrusts John to, to Mary and Mary to John. And from that day on, it says, from that day forward, he took her into his house. That means that he sat at the feet of the Blessed Virgin Mary and learned from her what Jesus was talking about. And that's why his gospel can grasp the mercy and the love of God, unlike any other writing in the entire flippin' Bible. He was taught by a woman. Okay? Second, I would also put this, women have a greater receptivity for the love of God. Women have a greater receptivity for the love of God. This is why women are, uh, there's more women in church than there are men. They just get it. It's easier for women to discern the movements of the Holy Spirit, to feel God, to, to, to encounter the living Christ because he's a man. And it's hard for me to talk about my love for Jesus <laughs> as a man. He's my lover. That sounds great. Preach that from the, from the pulpit. <laughs> Jesus is my lover. <laughs> But it's true, but for a woman, like, it's, they, they just have a greater receptivity. If, it, if you look in communist countries, like, who keeps the church going? The women. If you want to convert an entire kingdom, where did the missionaries go? To the queen. Because you get the queen, you got the king. You got the king, you got the kingdom. Because women understand the faith better than men do. That's why women are always, whether man, when their husbands are being jackasses and just hanging out watching TV and football games, the woman is doing all she can to get the kids together to try to get them to church, to try to get them to CCD, to fight with her husband to get them Catholic education. Because she has a greater receptivity to the love of God. She knows what God is calling her to better than what a man does. And therefore, she has the, she has the, the mission to teach man that. That's part of the genius of woman, too. Okay? There are four more I want to give you. Sensitivity is part of the feminine genius. 
Women are naturally interested in others and their relationships. They have a sensitivity about them. <clears throat> this is why women are way better than men when the kid comes home and he's crying because something went wrong. It's hard for a man to say, hey, you know, tell dad about it. You know, toughen up. <laughs> you know, like, but where a woman can just like smother the kid, right? And just like the kid feels so safe because and, and, there's this sensitivity about the woman that she is meant to communicate not only to men but to her children. And again, whenever I say children, remember, I'm talking about who? Everyone. Everyone. Not just your kids. Your genius is to convey sensitivity to the world. Okay? But if a woman's soul goes out to others in search of, and in order to bring out the hidden treasures that rest in the human soul, she begins to gossip. This is why you can see why, I hope you can see anyway, it sucks we only have one freaking class period to talk about this, but I hope you can see why, you know, the, the contraries, right? Why women suffer from gossip. Why? Because they're genius. Part of their nature, who they are, is to be sensitive. They want to make you feel good. They want to be involved in your life. And when that gets disordered and screwed up, and the source is all screwed up, it turns into gossip and backbiting. It just so happens, that just happens to be a major sin for women. Do you know what John Paul II would say? Why? Why gossip? Why gossip? Why is gossip so bad for women? And he sits back and says, because what are women meant for? This, and when it goes wrong, it turns into this. So looking at all the phenomena that's going on in, in nature and, and coming at it from different aspects. Okay? Receptive. <clears throat> it's another part of the feminine genius. <clears throat> and I, I hope uh, I've talked enough about this already. The receptivity of woman when, when she receives, like, one of the most beautiful things is when a woman receives a person into her life. Right? She just wants to be part of their lives. And again, if this has gone awry, right? Think about Sarah Swather in that article with the Emoticoaster, right? I want this guy to be so much a part of my life that I'm going to start stalking him. I'm going to start looking for him. I'm going to start dressing up and try to find, like, his class schedule and get to where he is at the right time so he can see me, you know, and, like, texting and all his stuff. Because it's all gone awry. It has the wrong focus. Like, a woman wants to be received into another's life. And if she can be received into the life of God, that will quell that whole movement. And that's why, it's, that's why Sarah says, run with God. Run at Him. And when you're running with Him, every once in a while, I'll turn and see who's running with you. Right? C.S. Lewis had this awesome thing. He said, a woman's heart should be so close to God that a man should have to chase God to find her. That's a hell of a quote. A woman's heart should be so close to God that a man should have to chase God in order to find her. Okay? So receptive. And again, we can see that on the level of physiology, right? Like we were talking about before, that she receives the man, not only into her life, like, emotionally and psychologically, but also physically, she's receptive. Next, uh, selfless. <clears throat> to be empty of all selfishness, self-love. 
And again, you can sit back and be like, how can you do that? Well, here's the thing, ladies, you can't. The only one that can do that is God. He's the only one that can move against your selfish motives. You know, what made Mother Teresa such an outstanding example of, uh, of woman is her selflessness. You know, like I think it was when they gave her the Nobel Peace Prize, they got up, you know, like for me, if it was a Nobel Peace Prize, I'd be working on minor remarks for a year in advance, or as much time as they gave me. You know what she did? She got up and said the Our Father. Let everybody in the ark, and then sat down. And afterwards, when they, when they walked out, they found the plaque underneath her seat. I'm going to talk about a woman that's selfless, that doesn't care about honors, that doesn't care about what people think about her. That's amazing. And like in that article when she said, when you find a woman, she is feminine, she is confident, and she is virtuous. She is not flippin' needy. Because she knows who she is. She is a beloved daughter of the Father. And if you want me, you're coming through, Jesus. And you better be damn aware of that. And if you're not interested in that, go away. Think about that, ladies. If you could say that to men. I'm going to talk about confidence. And you know what? When you say stuff like that, you'll be like, oh, that'll turn them off. Hell no. That'll turn them on. That will turn them on. And say, Frick, this girl believes in herself. She knows who she is. That makes you more attractive because you're harder to get. These are all choices we have to make, okay? So selfless. And then finally, this one I kind of just add is warm. <laughs> Not just like she hugs you and cuddles with you. She's warm. I just think of grandmas. You know? Like good, holy, sweet grandmas. There's just nothing like them. You just want to squeeze them and like just hold them because they're so you know they're just little. I just bag some cookies, baby. <laughs> they're like I love you. Like I, I don't even maybe I don't even know you, but I love you. You're just sweet. You're warm. You're. It's this like and again I don't I you know I put down here I said women come by this naturally, although not constantly, because again it's built into you so it's part of who you are. But all these things can be turned so awry, and it comes back. I can't, I can't stress this enough. If I ask you this question, where is it? I just want to make sure I say it right. You have got to have this on here. <clears throat> and that is when I said, to where or to whom will you direct your feminine longing for love? In the end, that is what either ignites the feminine genius or stifles the feminine genius, is where you will direct your feminine longing for love. If you direct it towards God, all these other things are going to come along. Now, it's going to take time, and you're going to feel not like a feminine genius, but like a feminine dropout, right? But that's okay. Just keep at it. You know, St. Paul says those who persevere will be saved. He doesn't say those who get it perfect. He doesn't say those who know everything, those who are perfect saints before they die get to heaven. He says those who don't give up, those who keep fighting, those who are aware that they still need to progress further in the spiritual life. And I am not, I might focus on myself at that time, but damn it, I'm going every day to Mass, I'm going every day to the chapel, and I'm saying, 
Jesus, I want to focus on you. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Mark Wahlberg, you know Marky Mark? I love that guy. He is a, he's, just a, he's a great actor. He's just kind of a dude. And he had a hell of a past. Like a hell of a past. We're even at the point where he went to prison. And I don't know if you know the story behind it, but there was a Catholic priest that started working with him and brought him back to the church. And now every day, he has actually an interview. You can watch this online. He's talking about, they say, like, you know, in Hollywood, it, it isn't really common for people to be faithful. You know, like, why? Like, it's, it's rumored that you go to church every day. He's like, well, I don't go to, he's like, I don't go to mass every day, but I go to the church for about 15 minutes every morning on my way to work. And they're like, why? He's like, because it focuses me. It gets me to remember why I'm doing what I'm doing. And when I do things, why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for Jesus. Like, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful interview. And like, you know, I mean, still, you know, like he still makes some movies that are a little questionable at times, you know, but he's, he's, he's working on it. He's got his focus. He's got his center. His, his point of reference. He might get off the road. He might be swinging left and right, but he knows, he knows his focus and where he wants to end. Do you have that? Okay. And again, I would like you to write this down. The mission of woman is to be within the mission of man. I think, didn't we talk, we talked about Ephesians a little bit, right? The submission. So the mission of woman is to be within the mission of man. And I want you to write this down. Deacon James Keating said this to me. I thought it was awesome. Every woman says to every man, I'm going to kill you. <clears throat> every woman says to every man, I am going to kill you. Now, you know, on the onset, that's funny, but you understand what, I hope you understand what he's saying, right? And again, this is in the area of marriage specifically. I'm go on your wedding day, the woman should just, there should be a part of the marriage right where she says, okay, John, I am going to kill you from this day onward. Because that's, remember, when we were talking about Ephesians, right? The man's mission is to love his, his wife as Christ loves the church, which means he needs to die for her. And the woman needs to allow herself to be died for and encourage the death. I'm going to kill you. I want you to die. I sometimes say that in marriage homilies. I'm like, today we celebrate funerals. There's two deaths today in our, in our church. <laughs> John and Stacy, they're going to die today. And so long as they stay dead or try to keep dying for the rest of their life, they will, it's going to be beautiful. You know, I say that too when we go through the wedding rehearsal. And there's a, there's a point right before the, the exchange of vows when you ask the couple questions and they each respond I do I do I am I am I have I have whatever and I say to him I say all right I'm gonna ask you three questions you have to each respond yes for yourself and I want you to realize this is the last time ever you are going to respond for yourself the church is very clear about this because after that then come the consent the exchange of vows the exchange of rings and now the two have become one. There is no more questions about you and you. It's just you two who have become one. It's incredible stuff, right? But you got, I'm gonna, I love that line. When he said that, I really never forget that. 
Every woman says to every man, I'm going to kill you. Okay? And the question of every woman to every man is, am I lovable? The question of every woman to every man is, am I lovable? <clears throat> So I hope you see, I'm going to go back and read this one more time if you want to look it up. It is Redemptoris Mater number 46. You can find it on the Vatican.va website to get this, this quote if you want to write it down. I hope, I read it at the beginning, I'm going to read it at the end. I hope you can see now that this quote, number 46, encompasses exactly what the feminine genius is. It can be thus said that women, by looking to Mary, find in her the secret of living their femininity with dignity and of achieving their own true advancement. In the light of the Virgin Mary, the church sees the face of women, the reflection of a beauty which mirrors the loftiest sentiments of which the human heart is capable, the self-offering totality of love, the strength that is capable of bearing the greatest sorrows, limitless fidelity, and tireless devotion to work, the ability to combine penetrating intuition with words of support and encouragement. Like if that isn't one of the most beautiful understandings of femininity, I don't know what it is. So be aware, you are being fed many lies about what it means to be a woman. Try your best to help men. Maybe not throw everything away, but do something different with it. Just try it. And try to learn how to be receptive, to be warm, to be sensitive. And always keep your eyes focused on Christ because he alone is the one that is going to fill that desire that all of your hearts have, ladies. That deep, deep desire. And so how do you do that? You stay faithful to your faith. Whatever is asked of you, you do it. And you pray. And you sacrifice. And you live like the master. And give your life so that others can live. I'm telling you, in the end, this is the end of this class. It's been awesome having you guys. I hope you learned something and just don't remember me from crapping my brains out in Mexico. <laughs> but more that, that you, I don't know, that you have like a new desire inside of you to live for something different. Because that's what happened to me, and I just want to convey that to you, hopefully. It's been a pleasure teaching you guys. Um, I hope to... At best, keep in touch with some of you, maybe all of you. If I see you and don't remember your name, don't be offended. I'm an idiot when it comes to names. I think I finally got them all down tonight when I was handing back papers and it's the last day of class. <laughs> so I don't know how long we're going to stick up here. Um, but I'm, I'm praying. I was praying for you guys all semester, and I just hope that something, something deep and, and powerful happens in your life, like it happened in mine, like it's happened in so many others. And in the end, the answer to this whole class, the meaning of life is Jesus Christ. You stay close to Him. You follow Him. You give your life to Him. You seek Him all the time. You pray to Him. You be in relationship with Him, communion with Him, and try your best. You will experience joy. Not in your life, but in your marriage. And whatever. Maybe you're going to become a priest. Maybe you're going to become a religious. I don't know. But realize that it's hard. Life is hard. And when especially, the last, last little piece of advice, <clears throat> when you're looking for the one you're going to marry, look at what kind of person they want to be. 
Do they want to be what we talked about in masculinity, in femininity? Because if they don't want that, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough regardless, but it's going to be really tough if they don't want that. Second, if you want to expect that of your future spouse, you better damn be living it. You can always start again, start fresh. I don't know what all your pasts are. I'm sure there's a lot of stupidity and dumb choices. We've all done them, I have too. You can start again, you can walk out of here, and you can start over. And you can start living the life that you know you want to live. And find good people to support you. Otherwise, you'll never make it alone. Okay? Let's close with a prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, I just ask you to watch over your beloved sons and daughters. But Lord, what we talked about in this semester might sink deep into their hearts, might transform their lives so that they might live more effectively for you, trusting you, praying to you, staying close to you. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of our faith and for the gift of this university and for education. We ask that we might never take it for granted and that we might implement everything that we have learned into our future jobs for the greater glory of your kingdom so that you may be served and you may be loved those that we encounter. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Good luck next week.